message for you. Ah, yes, from? Yes, from someone who sends his warmest regards, Oren Sofer. Who? Oren Sofer. Oren, oh. He was an onagaric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in New Jersey? Um, he teaches sometimes in New Jersey. Oh. And I've and Carrie, we both sort of studied with him a bit. Oh, great. And he says to send you his warmest regards. Thank you. He wants you to know that he's very well, doing very well. Great. And that his body is healthy and he's completely healed from Lyme. Wow. Because he was going through it. Yeah. He had it already and then he got bitten just before he came here. No, he had... Yeah, some kind of chronic fatigue thing. Yeah, and then something, he, yeah. And then he got the Lyme? Yeah. Well, that's great news. Yeah, he's great. We see him you know, a couple times a year. Uh-huh. He's living in California? Yes, yeah. he is. And he teaches all over. Um, so he's found a nice niche. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he's, he's caring for his parents, too. A little bit, yeah. 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 Oh. If you see him, that that's his New Jersey connection. Ah, uh, the folks, right? He's right next town over. Yeah. Uh, and when he's in town, he'll teach in the area, or he'll teach in Massachusetts. Uh-huh. So. And at IMS as well, or yes, because he did that course, right? And BCBS also, yes. Great, good. So a lot with nonviolent communication and mindfulness. You know, mindful communication. We just wrote a book. Oh. So I'm very happy for him. Yeah. Because his energies were so low. Yeah. Yeah. These chronic illnesses are... Yeah. They just go on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Our two monks are... Did you hear the story of the Vietnamese healer? No. No. How many times have I told this once a lot? They just bear with me. It's a great story. Um, I think how many times you've heard it. It's a good story. There's a book called Fourth Uncle in the Mountain. Did you read that? It's about a Vietnamese man who is a doctor of naturopathy. And it's his life story. And he was left in a marketplace in Vietnam by whoever gave birth to him, just abandoned. And a monk picked him up, a monk who was a healer. And in Vietnam, if you pick up an abandoned child, then it's your son or your daughter. So he had the obligation and duty to now care for this boy. And he's a, he himself is a great healer from Vietnam. So this was before the... The man now is around uh, about 80 years ago. So the monk, who was also a kind of a foot doctor and great healer and, and mystic and all manner of interesting things, he raised the boy to be a healer and taught him pulses that they use in Vietnamese Chinese medicine. And in the 
description of the various religious practices that, that his father did, his uh, stepfather, I suppose. He describes a, a man who lives in the mountains of Vietnam, who is this very esoteric, weird, lovely uncle who lives in the mountain, fourth uncle who lives in the mountain. And the description of it is like, it's very mythical. So somehow this man lives on almost nothing, on it's just like dewdrops or something like that. And the, the father gets this, a lot of the spiritual energy from fourth uncle. And then it describes how he gets into the caves to reach fourth uncle and so on and so forth. So this boy was uh, raised to be a healer and he himself became a very, very good healer. And then when the war came, he finally, when, when the uh, North Vietnamese came into Hanoi, he had to flee and he became a refugee from Vietnam and he ended up in Vermont. And a woman who is a healer in Vermont, who works with Lyme's, or Lyme disease, um, she, she, her son had a disease which no doctors could diagnose, and Dr. Wong diagnosed it as, as a tuber tuberculosis of the bones. I think that was it, something like that. And he said, you better go and get it checked out in conventional medicine because they're going to have to do something pretty heavy. And it was true. And so Dr. Wong saved the boy's life. So his mom then became a disciple of Dr. Wong and learned the, the medical techniques and started up a, a clinic of her own in, in Vermont and works with Lyme as well. I think all of all Vermont doctors that just specialize in Lyme disease. But anyway, so I thought, well, if he lives in Vermont, and my guys have got Lyme, let's try to find him. So we, we searched it down where she was, and then we actually found his address in Bennington. But he no longer takes patients, so we couldn't get an appointment with him. So I, I thought we should just try to get in touch with him, and I, I went down to Temple Monastery uh, and I took one of our young monks who had had some Lyme's disease too and he and a, while I was having the meetings in temple he and a layman went up to look for this doctor and they knocked on his door and the doctor came and invited him in he said he's got he doesn't take any more patients but he'd certainly take care of a monk but he you know he'd have to this, this young monk would have to get an appointment so this young monk then went to New to uh, Melbourne, and then we went to India. To make a long story short, Amar Syrian Siri Mado uh, finally got an appointment with him, and they went to go see him. And he's a kind of very, very, very gentle, very, very soft uh, healer, and he did their pulses, and then he prescribed. He 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 prepared herbal medicines for them. And so now they go, they get herbal medicines every three weeks from him. He makes a batch and does it all for free, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, Amar Siri brought him presents when he went. And, and, and Dr. Wong said, no, no, I give you 
I give to monastery, you don't give to me. Mm-hmm. So we've got this beautiful connection with this very mysterious uh, doctor and whose who's, uh, treatment seems to be affected. So they have a kind of... The first two treatments had three or four days of purgatives, serious cleansing, uh, and then the, the other two weeks of the, of the first three courses were building up different organs with different herbs. And, and they both said it really, it really worked. There's the story. Have you met him? I haven't, no. Dr. I haven't been there. I'm, I'm too healthy. <laughs> I'd like to, but I also don't want to bother because he's very reclusive and he's very quiet. He's obviously got his own meditation. And he was just in Vietnam uh, visiting Fourth Uncle. And just, just come back. Yeah. But if you, if you ever come across the book, it's a fascinating reading. Really. Fourth Uncle? In the mountain. In the mountain. Yeah. He wrote it. The woman. I see the woman. She wrote it, but he described it. I, I guess because his English isn't that great. I, mm-hmm. I guess they had translators. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, it's his story. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know that there are people like that in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question about. Um, your practice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you've been practicing for a few years, right? Last time you asked me if I was enlightened. <laughs> you asked me I if I have attainment. Do you always do this to teachers? That sounds like me. <laughs> you give it a go. I'm not, not necessarily going to give you an answer. Give it a go. <laughs> I was just wondering if you're. Um, <clears throat> If over the years does your practice evolve, does it sort of grow or change or evolve in any way? <clears throat> More? Like where is that question coming from? Just so I, because obviously it's referencing your own life. Yeah, having practiced for a while, there seems to be those first couple of years really following the teachings and coming back to the breath and so forth and then um, I notice you sort of reach kind of a a point where the mind is relatively stable clear, you're beginning to see the benefits Um, and I was just wondering if someone is, is it sort of like a holding pattern at that time where you sort of get to this point of um, calm, of clarity, and you just sort of stay with that and the practice unfolds on its own. What is the practice for you? Well, I was thinking for myself, um, it does sort of change as conditions change. So, mostly, (laughs) I thought I was was asking you. (laughs) That's too easy. Because I want, I want to, you know, talk about your practice rather than my practice. So I like to know where where the question is coming from. Okay. So, like, so what do you mean by practice? I'm not being challenging. I just want to understand you, right? <laughs> well, 
lately, this past year, practice has included really relaxing, relaxing the body, mm -hmm. calming the mind, and reaching the point of letting go that is so, somewhat new to me. The letting go. The, the degree to which it seems important to just completely relax, I'm not trying to get anywhere. Come back to, it's not even like I'm coming back to the breath necessarily, as I just come back to calm and relax. Um, and how does that So practice comes from right understanding, correct? Mm -hmm. Whatever we mean by practice. Mm -hmm. um, so what is it in your understanding now that has brought you to this particular way of functioning? Because mm. there's something new or it is something new. It's not just old age, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, the best I can answer is through um, just trial and error, just having practiced over time. Mm -hmm. Trying different things out. And it seems out. out of this quiet, um, I begin to get that feeling. This is where the um, insights Mm -hmm. Realizations come. At the same time, I'm noticing that <clears throat> connections with others are more important than ever. Mm -hmm. um, studying and talking the Dhamma, like we're doing right now, mm -hmm. is more important than ever. It's really has struck me that. Um, you know, it's not just living your life and practicing for a few minutes each day, but really as an alternative way of living. Yeah, that's why for me the word practice is always... I always ask lay people that because my life, is, I, don't, I don't differentiate. You know, I don't have a practice and then do monk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so like, I, I don't have a second life. I think... You know what I mean? Yeah. And or like people, <laughs> I was telling Lancelot yesterday, when I first ordained my, my high school friends would say, so what are you going to do after? <laughs> you know, after you've done monk. <laughs> when you retire. Yeah. So, so okay. So for me, uh, there, there, there is nothing that is not practice. Okay. And, and, it all has to be informed with right understanding, or I'll, I'll get a bad result if it's informed by wrong understanding. Mm -hmm. And the wrong understanding isn't necessarily fully conscious. I might, have some, I might be functioning from some bias and I'm not quite aware of it. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think there is an evolution of, of um, attitudes, excuse me, of attitudes which come about through seeing things you've not seen before. Maturing, I should think. Mm -hmm. But then again, like Nick Scott once said to me, he said his capacity for suffering is always 100%. He's, he's always full on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not like you're not doing work. It's 
not that you're not addressing uh, issues, it's just that different times you get um, different material coming up. There's that. But to me it seems that the basic insight should always be the same. The basic right understanding should always be the same. And to me that would be non-attachment to the khandhas, mm -hmm. non-grasping of the khandhas, mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, Understanding the profundity of knowing the way things are, or knowing change. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 both both an understanding that the li liberation of the heart cannot be in the khandhas, mm -hmm. and involvement, attachment, fascination, whatever with the khandhas is the problem, mm -hmm. and that non-grasping also implies a, a, a deep confidence in knowing dharma. It's not just about non-grasping, it's also this other confidence in puru or now is the knowing or whatever language you want to use. Mm -hmm. So why I say that is because if, if, you, if you don't have the alternative of, of, of positivity or optimism or faith in the, the knowing, you can just be trying not to attach to the khandhas and actually be struggling with the khandhas because you don't, you don't have the insight into what knowing change is about. Mm -hmm. So those two are, 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 to me, fundamental to right understanding. So given that, the uh, uh, being awake to change, awake to the way things are, knowing the way things are, then from that, the types of grasping that take place will be different according to different stimuli, according to different times of my life, according to um, different energies in my body and so on and so forth, right? So, so the, the khandhas will present themselves in different ways at different times. Mm -hmm. But the insight of non-grasping, to me, is always the same. It doesn't change. And, and, and understanding that is, pretty, is, is the practice. Always remembering that, is, to me, is the practice of non-grasping. But then how do I do that within, like someone was telling me the other day that she's just been, got blindsided by someone and going through a hard time and, and, and she just used forgiveness, forgiveness, constantly doing forgiveness. And so you go, that was a really skillful ubaya for the emotional negativity that she got, uh, got put up into her, say, by this difficult social situation, mm -hmm. but it should always be leading to the same non-grasping. So you can see if I'm, if I'm uh, resentful of someone who said something to me, and then I keep thinking revengeful thoughts or whatever, something like that, and then I say, no, no, forgiveness. I start to do forgiveness, but it's not about me being bad or anything, it's just forgiveness is the ubaya for non-grasping. Mm -hmm and opens the heart in, in very, very good ways. Mm -hmm. Vice versa, if I'm, um, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm feeling remorseful, I'm the other person that did that, I, I used that kind of horrible language and hurt someone, and then I, oh yeah, and I feel really, really remorseful, then right practice would be remorse rather than guilt, mm -hmm. right? So if my mind went to guilt, I say, no, that's hatred, I, want, I need to go to love. And I feel the remorse. Is, oh, okay, this hurts. That hurt that person. Okay, this is this is this is pain. 
and that brings out love. Right? But it's always about non-grasping. But non-grasping can sound so very cold and clinical that, that um, the beauty of human relationships and the, the beauty of the silence of the mind, those get kind of, they don't, they don't seem to be included in that. So the, the, the now is the knowing. Uh, for me also, like Ajahn Sumedho's phrase, now is the knowing also includes metta. That the, the knowing is acceptance of all things. This kind of broad consciousness and heart which accepts even one's own faults and one's own foibles or one's own aging, whatever. So then the participation in life becomes much more, I think, as we let go of the grosser kinds of things, we notice the more subtle kinds of becomings and, and conflicts that we have, and even those we let go of. So even trying becomes a different... Mm-hmm. My trying, when I was Lancelot's age, was, was fierce. It was so fierce it was uh, embarrassing now. <laughs> but it was not really conjoined with experience or wisdom. A little bit, but not much. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn by just overdoing it. Now when I think about that, gosh, you know, where, what was I doing? But that's, that's what I knew. That's, that's what I understood. So the grasping when I was younger took place as a young guy trying to get enlightened tomorrow. Uh, the grasping now takes place in much, much more subtle kinds of ways. So I use, like I use a phrase, I've been using a phrase the last two months, a month? Um, two months. Uh, when am I? When, when am I? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I watch in my own mind is bhava, bhava tanha, mm-hmm. the becoming, mm-hmm. and and based on memory or future possibility. And when when that when I when I, I when I'm not aware or not attentive to Baba, then the thinking mind creates a sense of self. Is that the volitional formations? Sure, okay. At work? Yeah. At Sankaras, yeah. Sankaras? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just how it works, isn't it? You know, you get a, you get a memory and then or your future possibility you start to create a sense of self. So self is just thought. So when 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 yeah. when I say when I say when am I? It makes my mind very alert to becoming, to Baba, and always brings me back to the present moment. So like if I'm walking from the, my 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 room to the workshop, and then I'm trying to get to the workshop, when am I? Oh, now the sense of I has arisen because I'm trying to get to the workshop. And it's not gross or bad. It's not like the fierceness I had as a young guy, but it's still Baba. It's still a sense of rising. Or if I'm, if I'm you know, working on a piece, piece of woodwork and I'm trying to get it finished because it's almost 11 o'clock and, I, and the meal's coming, oh, when am I? Because the sense of I now is... Is, is, has been created through time, through the future, and getting something finished. But that, so that practice is appropriate to me working with Bhavatanha, right? Mm. And that's the way the sense of self uh, is arising uh, uh, considerably. And it always has, probably, but now there's, a, there's much more subtlety there. 
But the, that, the, that seems to be the direction you've gone from coarse to very subtle. It has to be, doesn't it? Yeah, it has to be. And, there is, and I guess very subtle eye, which is easily recognized and easily abandoned. Because it's just thought, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not some kind of emotional turmoil that I'm carrying around for four days because I just had a heavy argument with one of the monks or something like that. You know, of course you yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's just habit. Habit of self. Do you notice um, times when there is no baba? baba yes, of course, yeah. What's that like? Well, like now. <laughs> yeah, I just have to declutter a little bit. <laughs> it's always now, isn't it? Yeah. So that's what the one is returning to, uh, awakening to Dhamma, in these various... Um, uh, what was Ajahnamuro's phrase? He was doing a phrase. What was that? Do you remember? He had one. The jitta is not a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the jitta is not a person. Mm-hmm. Me- yeah, emotions are, are not a person. Mm-hmm. Emotions are not a person. That's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, because your emotions are coming up. Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, that person may not like me or whatever. And then, oh, that's emotions are not a person. Mm-hmm. And the mind's awake again to dharma, the dharma of emotions. But I've been noticing specifically, I, I think in this in this realm, what you're talking about is when um, Vedna becomes conscious to me. And I I think of it more as I like, I don't like. Okay. Um, I can notice the mind immediately get busy with that. Right. Uh, And it's very, very interesting to not do that. That's Kamatanha. And to see if I can just stay with a simple Vedna. Right. So that's, it's the same non-grasping, but you're working, and you're working with Vedana, Pasa Vedana, Upadana, so on. So, so Tanha Upadana, so, so you're working in that area. That's, that's the area you're working. You're working in Vedana, conditioning Tanha, conditioning Upadana, and Upadana's attachment, right? Right. So with whatever, whatever, the way, whatever way your sense um, data is being kind of stimulated in the history of your relationship to things uh-huh. is going to create the upadana, and that's that. So it's non-grasping again. You know, when you when you look at liking and disliking, and you're just staying with whatever, then that's non-grasping. When you take it into thought, and it's like the disliking remain. Sure, it's, it's still there. Noticing dislike, honestly yeah. dislike, yeah, which is all right. Can, can it just remain? With nothing else. Yeah, with no, with no need for you to analyze it, or blame, or yeah, it's just dislike. Dislike is this way, and then it neutralizes. Or if it's like something like very, very painful, then it's telling you, okay, you got to move. So there's also a biological kind of um, imperative there. Yeah, but to me, the, the fundamental insight is is one. Is what you know the the non the grasping is the the what separates us from peace. Grasping is what pulls attention out into the kandas and keeps us distracted into trivial pursuits. And it's not just immoral, you know. It's just trivial pursuits. The mind always busy, and then the mind knowing the mind is the kind of liberation 
from, uh, from grasping the attachment. So even when you know dislike, you know, it's all right. You've, 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 got, you've, got the, you've got the secret. If you think, you know, if you make a judgment on it, then you're still grasping the kindness. It's a, it's a secret, but it's not uh, mystical, special, no. the way you describe it. It's just, well, it's just this very, a very, very natural state. I always describe it as the punchline of a joke. You know, if you if you get now now it's it's just it's just you get it or you don't. Non grasping. If you don't get it, then you, you get very complicated uh, into thought and so on. But if you get non grasping, oh yeah, that's all you got to do. And then the, the problem is is a habit. A habit. Grasping. Yeah, and, and and it's so complicated and so very and so subtle and so gross that it takes a wee bit of work. And I know you're speaking of aversion as well as grasping, both, both sides of that. Well, well, grasping is a type of aversion. Right. Lust is uh, aversion is a type of grasping. Lust is a type of grasping. Yeah, it's the self-identity with all that stuff. When, when, like, when, let's say, like remorse. Remorse, when it's felt, is actually a very compassionate uh, feeling. Guilt is. Embedded with self-view, my thinking, I thinking, and that's grasping. So you keep you keep monitoring the I making, my making, the self-making, and when am I? <laughs> and then you start to cut into it. I was just reading that with um, pa- um, Ajahn Pasano uh-huh. in the book on the shelf. Is uh-huh. that Hiri 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 Otapa? H I R I. Yeah. H I R I Otapa. Yeah. Hiri, I define as being um, a, a, a sense of remorse for something that one has done which has been painful or unkind or cruel to oneself or others. Mm-hmm. And then Otapa, I define, so that's like a past thing. Mm-hmm. And Otapa for me is the future, like this sense of caution in doing something which would be harmful to others or myself. Mm. Kind of like walking in the tall grass when you know tick is there. Mm. As soon as you see tall grass in this monastery, you have fear. Mm. <laughs> and you say no, because of the ticks. So that's otapa. Yeah. As soon as the mind wants to insult someone or make a joke in a cruel way or something, uh, otapa. And if you do it, then hiri. But neither of those have anything to do with, with ego. No, the, we would call them wholesome states of mind, which connect you to the world in a way which isn't egotistical. Guilt would be egotistical. Guilt would be blaming, yeah. being hard, but this is really, I've just gotten off the path and returning. Yeah, yeah. True remorse is very compassionate. You know, when you've, when you've done something, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And you feel for their pain. Mm-hmm. It's very compassionate. Mm-hmm. And you just, just can't, can't take it to... If you take it to guilt, then you take it to more anger. If you keep with the remorse, you, 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 your heart really softens and you're more careful. And you won't do it again. You might. <laughs> but, but, you know, your heart softens in a way which is like... Guilt will make your heart angry, uh, averse again. And you'll do the same thing for sure. Mm-hmm. But... But remorse will soften you, and you might do it again, but if you keep doing it, eventually that softness wins out to the harshness.
they're, and they're natural phenomena. You know, they're, they're the ways of harmony. Did we cover that? <laughs> Somewhat? Very much so, thank But that basic insight for me is very, 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 very important. And then, can you want to... Non-grasping. Non-grasping. And, and the knowing. Both. That, 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 like, one of the lines I use is uh, that this experience is in awareness. That I find very powerful. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm feeling uh, sick or something. I've got a flu, and this is experiences in awareness. So all of a sudden awareness has infinite uh, capacity. This anger is in awareness. This fear is in awareness. And that brings you to the ineffable presence and knowing of the way things are, which has no definition and no description. And that's why it's transcendent, because it doesn't have a color, it doesn't have a, a, a characteristic. It may sound clumsy, but that sense of um, perspective is from the awareness. Yes, yeah, yeah. You can pull out of the event, whatever. Because awareness is always available. The awareness. Yeah, exactly. That's something I've noticed. Yeah, and that's very wholesome, because you'll find that with, with that perspective, you don't seem to be doing anything. You're not fixing anything or getting an insight or you know, getting more of this or more of that. You not, don't seem to be doing anything, but that reference becomes a kind of intuition of peace and then the, the attraction to the khandas is like a magnetic attraction which gets less and less and less. Mm. Not because you changed the khandas, but because you found a different perspective. And it's, it's, it's ineffable, intuitive, and all of a sudden you just, hey, it's more peaceful. Even, 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 even within an old habit, an old habit comes up, right, now of complaining or whatever. And has arisen. It has arisen, and yet there's that space, and it's, it hasn't got the same stickiness. And, and intensity and self in it, all of that. And would you say it leads you pretty much automatically to um, impermanence, the noticing of impermanence arising and passing? That's all part of the intuitive makeup of insight. You know, like the, the insights that we have, I think, are, are cumulative in the, fe- in, in the sense that they're deepened. So you don't really have to verbalize it. You just you know you, the knowing is imbued with dharma, you know. It's, so it's called it's sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mm-hmm. That it's imbued all those insights that you have, little by little, little by little, mm-hmm. they create a kind of intuition of what truth is, what balance is, what non-grasping is, which you might not be able to write out in an essay, but you can live it. Well, I've been having a hard time describing <laughs> it to you today. <laughs> Because it's, it's, it's different than an opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why Ajahn Sumedho tried to use this word intuitive awareness, which many people found difficult because they couldn't quite, quite relate to it. But I, I can see what he's pointing to is that, that, that knowing which is now informed by years and years of practice and insight and suffering and the end of suffering. And what is that? Wisdom? called wisdom. Sati Sampajanya, mindfulness. So there's many words that we might use. 
the uh, notion of it, the intuitive mm-hmm. quality. You kind of just you know. can't you can't really set a goal to get to intuition or something has to shift or yeah quiet down enough where intuition becomes more familiar to you. And yeah. I guess where you can trust it more. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, you have to quiet down for that to function. If you're busy judging, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I think of it as a musician. You, uh-huh. know, you can only you can teach how to play an instrument, a jazz musician in particular. You know, you can teach how to the notes and how to play it, but at a certain point they have to let go and just get the swing of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't teach that. We were trying. I was trying to remember the the famous jazz saxophonist. Was it Coleman? Uh-huh. Is that the one that they started the church? Uh-huh. What was his first name? Ornette. Or no, no, the one. Um, no, no, no. No, uh, the one who started the church was um, Train, John Coltrane. John Coltrane, that's it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember it this morning. No one, no one was doing my trivial pursuits this morning. <laughs> John Coltrane. Yeah, and they start, yeah, we're talking about churches, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful documentary content. Is that right? If you're interested in such things. Yeah. Oh, look it up. Yeah, Wonderful. he was. Interesting being. Very interesting. Yeah. 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 You seem to have a mystical experience in that. What was some piece about love? What was the name of it? Love Supreme. Love Supreme, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see the very interesting man. Yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Mm, my pleasure. Miracle. Did I pronounce it right? Miracle. Miracle. Emphasis on the first syllable. Miracle. Miracle. Did I get it? With a Y. Miracle. Miracle. Yeah. Oh. Not R. Not R. Miracle. There we go. Slowly. I'm old. And and your have you been into Dharma for a long time? Was your family into Buddhism, or...? Uh, she knows better Germans than English. He was <laughs> asked to family of Buddhism. Yes, yes. Yes? Of course, yes. Japanese family. And, and what kind of Buddhism? Yes, nature Buddhism. <laughs> Nature Buddhism, nice. Yes. So let us mix the Shintoism and yeah, Buddhism uh, in the Japan. They are both yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, a fascinating uh, country. Uh, uh, it is um, uh, dif- uh, another uh, different uh, as Thailand or the Myanmar. Yes. No, it is Much different. Japan is. Do you go back? Do you visit yes. very often? Uh, Japan? Yeah. Yes, yes, every year. Oh, nice. Yeah. I have of, often homesick. <laughs> often homesick, yeah. How long have you been married? Uh, 82. You've been married 82 years? No, no. <laughs> no. 1982. No, 1982 I got it. we married. <coughs> 79, we became a couple. 
And you bring, you both go to Japan then and visit? And yes, yes. Uh, oh, nice. Every year, mostly. Or yeah. Every two years. Ah, lovely. <laughs> I have a book on, on Japanese joinery. Yes. Mm. Oh, it's, it's just black and white photos of different kinds of wood joints. Mm. It's just a, just a piece of art. What they can do with wood is just stunning. So, do you, what what work did you do in uh, Germany? I studied um, in uh, Hamburg uh, music, uh, opera. Opera, singing. singing. Yes. Oh, <laughs> and did you perform? Yeah, you aufgetreten bist in the opera. Yes, yes. Uh, oh. It's three years uh, open theater in Hamburg. Uh -huh. yes, uh, in Tokyo too. In Tokyo as well? Yes, yes. Oh. She studied two times, once in Tokyo, and then performing in Tokyo, and then it was enough for her, came to Germany and studied once more. Can I ask a corny question? A corny, you know what a corny question is? It's a Corny is like silly question, silly question. Did, did you ever uh, perform Madame Butterfly in Puccini's opera? Butterfly. Madame Butterfly oh, and Puccini. For me, too a big uh, role. Too big a uh, part. Yes, I am the uh, little girl. <laughs> <laughs> Much more. You need bigger lungs. Yes, yes. Ah. You need a bigger body. Ah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. I like Mozart. <laughs> ah, yeah. We have very little music in our tradition. It's the most boring. Musical tradition. <laughs> we just have chanting, and it's sometimes it's a struggle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it goes. <laughs> and sometimes beautiful. Sometimes it goes. Yeah. Very sometimes, beautiful. if you get good, my voice fails after about fifteen minutes. Mm. It just goes like laryngitis. Mm. His voice is terrible. <laughs> and we're the, we're the guys that are supposed to lead, but the novices, their voices are beautiful, so we get the novices to lead. I used to love chanting, but uh, does your does your did you lose your voice eventually? Uh, no. Uh, oh, maybe I can't do it. Yeah, which uh, cold is not good. Mm. Cold is not good. Mm -hmm. And fear of cold is much worse. <laughs> <laughs> she has a fear of cold. Because it could damage the instrument. I because if the instrument is not working then. Yeah. I should be careful always here. Uh -huh. yeah. Keeping. I'll remember that. My, my father, my father was a refugee from Latvia, right? Mm. And when they were trying to, they were in Germany for, from 40, 44 to 52. And he spoke English so he could work on the American army base. But before he got that work, uh, he and seven others formed a male choir. Mm. He had a good 
baritone voice. And uh, they formed a choir of, of Latvian men, and then, and then they toured the, uh, I think the Baltic, because in, in, after the war, the Allies, the Americans, put like all the Latvians in a couple of towns, and Lithuanians, I think they tried to concentrate them, but so he would move around with this choir and uh, sing for a supper. <laughs> made a bit of money. So in our in our home, um, my dad always had the loudest hi-fi system. Not me. <laughs> so we would play the you know the Russian army choir or all kinds of choral music until eventually the whole family uh, revolted and said he had to get ear. Uh, what do you call those? Headphones. Headphones. It wasn't the young guys. <laughs> He'd play it so loud that rooms would shake. He's really into it. Russian military music? The Russian Army Choir, have you heard that? Wow, it's so good. Oh, there. Russians are great. great. They have great choral music because they have, they have the Russian Orthodox Church. Which has a lot of choral music in their in their liturgy. We won't play it for morning puja. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question and Please. talk about something I've been going through. And it's interesting. You're talking about our humanity, and we're talking about non-attachment, um, sort of you know, as human beings, how we live through experience and insights rise. Um, a very dear friend of mine just died, and I'm grieving. Um, and just watching that process of all the layers of grieving um, attached to her, clearly, because she was a dear friend. Um, I don't know what my question is. Um, I think sometimes it's so intense, the grief, and I know that there's a lesson for me in that intense pain, but it's also a little too hard to bear, so I give myself a little break. How do you give yourself a break? Um, well, a big tree fell out of our kuti, and I was cutting branches. <laughs> the physical work, work. working in the garden. Um, just stepping away from that pain, which is just a little too unbearable. But then knowing that I'm missing out on some that those insights to arise and wanting to get back into it. And so it's this interesting balance I'm watching right now of kind of stepping into it, remembering, stepping how back. do you how do you step into it? Um I guess the memory rises, um, a feeling will just overcome me. Um, and so that comes when you're quiet, or all the time? It, it can just sort of arise, right. yeah. And, and stepping into it means thinking about it, or? I guess really allowing it to just be with me, right. to be present with me, right. and not not analyze, but really sit with it to see what might come up for me. Right. 
And I guess I just wanted to know, how, you know, how in this practice, how we think about, how you think about grief and, you know, balancing our human qualities with those other qualities we aspire to. And this right knowledge you're speaking of, I'm very new to Buddhism, so these are kind of new terms for me. Well, that, you know, I think to me that when you said you just try to be present to it as it is, that's the right way to go about it, I would say. <clears throat> and and for me, the, the, the freedom that's possible in our, in our humanity requires us to be open to all things without excluding anything, but also without getting lost in anything. And, and so, <clears throat> if, let, let, let's say, if you, if you took on a viewpoint that you should, be, you know, you should take everything on, right? And whatever comes, you should take it on. And you get in a situation, you, you're so stressed that you stress out and you have a uh, nervous breakdown. That is a fixed position which you've taken around, I should accept everything, right? And the reality is, well, I should try to accept everything, but some things are too big for me. I better back off and get another job or whatever. Uh, so that's one extreme. And that's an extreme where you, where you kind of adopt a position that I should be able to always handle everything all the time. The other is that I, uh, another kind of position, I can't take this, uh, this is too much, I can't handle it, a kind of more negative negation of that. So if the general attitude is one of, of awareness, having a component of open acceptance, that otherwise it wouldn't be awareness. If it's just control, and kind of mindful control of things, then that, and it doesn't have that openness, then I, I would say it lacks what we call metta, or compassion, and and that's one of the things that, that I think is underemphasized in Western Buddhism is that awareness is not just a clinical knowing, it's also heartfelt accepting. So, uh, I know I feel frightened. Oh, okay, I know I feel frightened, but I accept, the f I welcome the frightened feeling, I accept it, I open to it as a different kind of awareness. Mm -hmm. And go back to intuitions, I think we all have a sense when things are too much. You know, the stress is too much, and we know, I'm going to back off. So if, you, if your general attitude, which seems to be the case, is one, I just want to learn how to be present with this. Not for this, I don't think for the sake of getting any more insight out of the grief, but for the sake of developing a, a greater capacity to be present. That, to me, is the strength rather than the content because the content is what it is to me the 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 the, the challenge of these kind of situation is okay this is really big can i be open to even this and no fine and i come back to it so your general attitude is yeah you want to understand this so that'll work and then it's too much do something physical it's very good it's a very good balance and then trust your own, your own intuition, your own wisdom, and your life experience that you'll know what to do. 
You'll know what to do when it comes up. But for me, the, 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 the challenge is the capacity to accept even this, even this feeling. I like to relate a story where, where I was uh, teaching a retreat in Toronto. I had just finished the retreat. I was in a, they had rented a hotel room for me. I was in a hotel room and I was going to fly to Ottawa the next day. This was the evening. And I got a phone call from, my, from someone telling me that my brother and mother had been in a car train accident. They're the only relatives I have, only blood relatives. And uh, no more information. And I couldn't get an earlier plane. I didn't know if they're dead, squashed. My mind went crazy. It just went crazy with worry. It just, just took, like, wow, it just went nuts. This was, when was this? This would have been kind of 1990, yeah. But it just took, and all I could do was just walk back and forth. Just like for two, three, four hours, just back and forth. I was just so distraught with it. And it wasn't me, right? It's just the way the system has been conditioned, and that I got blindsided by that. And it was neither right nor wrong. But I did have the capacity to just walk back and forth. I had no, no choice. Where I just kept with that. And the next day I woke up, I was in pretty good shape. And then I flew, and, and uh, very fortunately, my mother only. Uh, broke her shoulder. My brother was okay physically, and the car was a write-off. <laughs> but it was just so interesting to see how berserk my mind went. Now you could say, well, I should be equanimous, but it wasn't my choice. So equanimity is the acceptance of what is, rather than a preconceived notion that equanimity is some kind of non-emotional state. It's acceptance. And that acceptance has, is, isn't um, uh, fatalistic. It has the sense of openness. That, 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 that's a very important part. Yeah, like one of Ajahn Chah's phrases is to die before you die. You know, and, and that I kind of look at it, I, I, I was thinking about like doing some woodwork and I'm doing some things which don't refine much, which don't require much refinement, They're kind of rough things. But I say, no, no, I'm, I'm training now so I can make a good cabinet. So even though it's the work itself doesn't require that much accuracy, now I'm going to be accurate, so I just develop the skill to do accurate work when it's necessary. And I, say, I think it's the same in, in, in like in sport. You know, the, the, the coach will make you do wind sprints or uh, exercises if you play football or whatever to get you in shape for the game. Well, I, I, I think like dying before you die is that kind of idea where even getting annoyed at, at someone in a traffic jam is training for death. Because if I can be aware of my annoyance and say, oh, annoyance feels this way, then if annoyance comes up at death, I've trained with that. Anything I've trained with that. So if you look at all of life as a kind of uh, preparing for the game, as it were, uh, then you're always with the game. You're always playing the game. So this, this deep grief that you're feeling, who knows what will come up when we die? 
You know, we never we never know what the people who have died are feeling. Cause I I go to you know one funeral a year or something or two or something like that, and I know the feelings of people who have lost. Right, they're grieving and they're crying and 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 so on, but we never know the the person that died. Now you say, well, the person that died, there's no consciousness. Well, okay, but what if there is consciousness? You know what what's going on? I don't know, but it seems to me that being with deep grief now in a compassionate way, well, if ever deep grief comes up again, you, you say, oh yeah, even that's okay, even deep grief is okay. So that expands your capacity for awareness. And, and in terms of these ideas of non-attachment to the khandhas, non-attachment to the mind-body experience, it's not negating it, it's just being open to the flow and responding to it with compassion. So now the, the grief is there, whoa, this is big, and you're open to that flow, and you can respond to even that. So your heart gets bigger, and awareness gets bigger, and, and more free, because that doesn't threaten you anymore. And it's very layered. There's the grief for my friend. Uh-huh. There's, of course, always the wondering, where is she now? Yes. Depending on what you believe. Mm-hmm. But there's also then coming back to, oh my gosh, you know, me, this will happen to me someday and to others that I love and see just the mind moves around and I just watch the mind move around to these different places around this, you know, trying to understand, trying to feel, trying to... Well, what are you trying to understand? Well, I think there's always the mystery of death and what happens when we're gone, you know, right. when we go. Um, so, is are you trying to understand that? I think a little bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think some part of me knows that I, I won't really ever know. <laughs> um, and I guess part of it is just accepting what's unknown, and there's yeah. something beautiful in that mystery as well, but... It's that grasping you wanna, right? You know, okay, and then I won't be so afraid, or this fear, or the worry for my friend won't be as painful, you know. And she was a very deeply spiritual person, so I know she's flying in the light right now. Um, but it's so well, weird. Well, would you? So do you think? Of the, well, one basic question I ask people is: Do you think? Consciousness is a, is a physical phenomenon. In other words, when the body dies, does consciousness end? I don't think so. Okay. So, um, that's my, my basic question to everyone. Rather than karma and all of that, mm-hmm. do you have a sense that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the, of the gray matter, or is it its own kind of thing? I, like, so... Um, I think it's its own thing, right? And so, I can't prove it. And, and, and if it's a black hole at death, that'll be no problem either. <laughs> no one will sue me. But, so if, if, if consciousness is not physical, what could consciousness really be? And it can't be a sight because that's dependent on your eyes. You know, your eyes are going to 
die <laughs> or thought or emotion or taste or smell, bodily feeling, all of those when when the brain closes down, all of that material is gonna somehow not function like that. So what could consciousness be but the sense of presence? And that sense of presence um, has no quality, right? You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't label it. You can, I can know I feel hot, I can know I feel cold, but I can't know that I know, I just know. You can never, you can never see the knowing, you can only be the knowing, as we say. So if I take that as the, as my um, place of abiding as death approaches, uh, if I take the knowing as the place of abiding, then when all these things are changing, then you're with what we, I would think, is the unconditioned. And that to me is the spiritual quality of the spiritual possibility, is that very sense of presence and knowing. And in the pre it's not feminine, it's not male, it's not old, it's not Japanese, it's not German. All of those are objects. Uh, all those are objects. So, you, you know, and, and that's an important question, like how, how death might work. And rather than trying to figure it out uh, on an on a intellectual level, because that leave more doubts, I kind of I back up and I say, well, body's going to die for sure. Senses are going to die, but what about the knowing? What about awareness? And then when there's grief, say, or doubt about grief, or doubt about uh, rebirth or whatever, I say, oh, and that is a condition in awareness. So I always come back to awareness. Whereas intellect and thought, it grabs the doubt and then tries to figure it out. And that's still kind of engagement with thought. And that is good. Like if, if, you, if I smell smoke coming out of the kitchen and my mind thinks there's smoke, I'm not going to sit here, oh, non-attachment. <laughs> so there is a place for doubt, right? But this, this, this you, you can never reach this with thought, because thought is an object, whereas the knowing is not an object. So in, in, in Buddhism, I don't know if you've, you've seen the references, we have what we call the three fetters. And, and one of the fetters is called doubt. And doubt is, is a kind of hang-up that we have of always needing an answer. But the problem is we pose the question. So we pose a question, what is death, what will happen after death, and then we seek an answer, but thought can't figure that out. So we feel confident when we have an answer to doubt, and what we're doing is we're just knowing doubt as not knowing, as the discomfort of not knowing. And when you get with that, oh, this is uncomfortable, you let go of the need to know, and then you come to peace. Because then, that way you go beyond intellect. You're not rejecting intellect, but you know that's that's the limit of intellect. Mm -hmm. So when I would suggest, like as your mind starts to, well, what about them and what about them? Can you see the underlying tone of the mind, which is generating the thinking, and the underlying tone is doubt or fear or whatever? Oh, what's that? What's that like? So you're getting deeper into the conscious experience rather than just the thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a very uh, tricky one, doubt. Because we, 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 we feel really happy with conclusions. 
two and two equals four. Oh, that feels good. <laughs> or uh, what's what's the day today? Or uh, what were my appointments? So that we always like conclusions, obviously. But in this one, there is no conclusion. So you go beyond doubt, not by having an answer, an opinion, but by knowing doubt is something that comes and goes. It's different. That's why Buddhism is very interesting. It's not. It's not. Um, it doesn't attach to doctrine. If you attach to doctrine, you won't understand Buddhism. And that's where, like, people who attach to doctrine and start argue about other people, they don't see that their, you know, their their investment is in thought, in views and opinions. And they don't see the need to do that. They can be very clever and argumentative, but actually they're not free, because they haven't understood doubt. They think the way to have, the way to deal with doubt is by being confident, so they have strong opinions. But they're usually not happy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had this two scholars in when I was living in Auckland, two, two famous scholars. They, one was giving a talk and the other was in the audience, and they started to have this argument about some abstruse form, you know, and they were like passionately arguing this point and. The rest of us are kind of, oh God, let's just get shut up. And they were enjoying it. They loved to have an opinion and, you know, throw the other guy off. But they weren't free. They were just opinionated. <laughs> and everyone could see it except them. And you're kind of jousting. So doubt is, uh, and thought. One of the things I you might do is just, what does this feel like before I think about it? Mm. You're not rejecting it. It's like what? Okay, so your mind is thinking about whatever, and hey, what's this like before I think about it? And then you get like a yucky feeling, maybe, or and then you're in touch with it in a very simple way. Would you say there's a kind of surrender then that happens? Mm-hmm. An openness and a surrendering to yes, that? Yes, that's a good word, yeah. Yeah, to giving yourself to, to the not knowing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's a great relief. I, don't I, know. I, I actually feel that as you, as you talk about this. There's like a little weight off my chest. Yeah, you don't have to figure this one out. Yeah. Like as a teacher, you know, when I... When I discovered that I could say I don't know, it was great. <laughs> People that ask me a question beats me, I don't know. So, and then I didn't have to be the expert anymore. I had such a great feeling. Before that, I have, you know, I have to have an answer. <laughs> like I'm not very well read in Pali or the scriptures because much of my, much of my teaching has come from orally. I've had very, very good teachers. So I'm not I'm not very educated that way, and then I can see like when someone comes at me with a poly question, oh no, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been a monk? Oh, where's Bhikkhu Bodhi? You would never do that to me. <laughs> so that I could feel like oh, oh. <laughs> but then then that's a feeling too, right? Yeah, oh yeah, this is a feeling of embarrassment. And then the novice knows more than me. We've, we've got a novice who is fluent in, in Sanskrit. Uh, so I ask him all the Pali stuff. <laughs> I 
So, so not knowing is actually very freeing. Yeah. In that, in that spiritual sense. So much in spirituality is that when we sit and meditate, we really do have to just let go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and let's be. It's hard if you have a controlling mind. I think people who are, yeah, control a lot, they, they can get results, but sometimes they, they, there can be a lot of becoming. You know, they've got a program, they've got this agenda, this, a lot of, like Carrie's saying, that sense of ease that caught off is missing. Miyako, is that right? Did I get it right? Yay, all right. I have to do this because I forget. <laughs> Klaus is easy. <laughs> it's an easy one. Can, can I just ask that one phrase you said about understanding Buddhism, it's not about doctrine? Yeah. It's not about attachment to doctrine. Mm. Using doctrine as a reflection as opposed to a position. Mm. So, um, let's say, I read, let's say I read Advaita, mm. right? And I read Sri Ramana. Mm. And, Ra- and Sri Ramana says, uh, you are the self. Mm. And then, I, you know, I have my Buddhist terminology, oh, not self, mm. it's rubbish, Advaita Vedanta. But I have no idea actually where the guy's at and why, how he uses the word self. So I've taken a doctrinal position and nonsense, that's not, you know, it's just Hinduism, Advaita. But I've not understood the man or really communicated with him. But then if I communicate with him, I say, I'm not taking a position, so how do you use the word self? What is your insight? Who are you as a human being? And how do I use the word self? Then it's a, it's a reflective tool that we both use to have a discussion to see where doesn't mean I have to agree with them you know I can still say well your insights doesn't fit mine uh, I, I don't I don't see it that way like if someone says to me um, murdering is a good idea <laughs> I said well maybe for you <laughs> but I would disagree, but it wouldn't be a doctrinal thing. It would be, I just know darn well. It's not a good pathway to go on. Or someone, like a more reasonable, someone's cheating on taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's government, it doesn't matter, or, or you know, it doesn't, I know it doesn't matter. And I wouldn't be coming from doctrine, I'd be coming from my own experience of, you know, yeah. So where does doctrine fit in? Doctrine is the reflective um, mirrors that you use for self-understanding right so so if I if, if um, that which has a nature to arise is a nature to cease as, as a doctrine you just say it you forget about it but as a reflective vehicle if I'm feeling um, upset towards someone and I say that which has a nature to arise is a nature to cease then that reflective teaching doctrine gives me an attitude to this feeling of upsetness that this will change. So I've used it as a vehicle for letting go. And I'm tying that into that whole notion of going into intuition, into the realm yeah. of intuition. And that intuition is has been assisted by the Buddhist teaching, which is about nature, the nature of things. You know, the Dharma is the nature of things. It's not an abstract philosophy that he invented. He just saw how things were. 
and then he described them. So then by, by listening to the Buddha's teaching and his disciples and so on, and then reflecting, hey, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it does change. Yeah. So it's before I get all kind of, I, oh no, just be patient. Oh yeah, okay. And I'm patient. And then my intuition then builds over the years from that insight about nature, about the way things are. As your reliance on intellect diminishes. Yeah, what is more powerful is wisdom and the reflective capacity as opposed to the... You mean, you, mean, you have to be smart to some extent, right? You need yeah. intellect, but, but it's, it's, it's a deeper thing. It's seeing cause and effect, seeing nature, which to me is wisdom and the reflective, contemplative capacity that we have. Mm. Whereas the opinion... Like m m many of my Sri Lankan friends, they say they got A's in Buddhism in high school. Right across the board, they didn't have a clue. Then they come here and they start to hear, you know, talk about suffering and, and oh, that's what Buddhism's about. <laughs> so, so they... Well, well, that goes all the way back to the original question about how do we evolve in our practice on this path. We evolve by going from reliance on the intellect, slowly letting that go. And I think we already come with our own intuitions. What's that? We already come with our own intuitions, don't we? You know, we've... We've done something to get here, you know, like we've lived something to, to be somewhat discontented with consumer society and so on. And then, and then we, we plug into this, not just as an abstract, I think, intellectually, but it makes sense to us, both intellectually and emotionally and experientially maybe, you know, on kind of different levels. We're drawn to it in that way. I certainly was. And I, you know, I was a young guy, but I had, I had some body of experience that, that spoke to me. So the intuition was, a, you know, nascent, I suppose. What's the time? 20 minutes after 6. 20 after 6, probably time to have a shower. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Always enjoy. Thank you. Anyone, everyone's all right? We only have one shower, our apologies, but if you rotate, it's okay. Mm. We will make room five into a shower one day. Mm. We've got all the plumbing ready, mm. but we've got a list of things we want to accomplish, so it keeps key. We were going to do it this, this year, but we just bought some land. <laughs> and the sala, how's that going? Well, if we if if the devas are with us, we might we might start foundations in next spring. It kind of depends on, uh, yeah, you know, things which. Uh, there are some pledges to help because it's a huge project; it's ridiculously huge, and so um, if those pledges come through, then we might be able to start getting some foundation. Once you get some foundations, people can see it's happening. Then. That helps a lot. And as that was happening, this land became yes. available. <laughs> <laughs> you got your intuition fired up. Oh. Your, your I, I wasn't interested in it in the beginning because I thought, we've got to build this thing. And then my, my fellow monks in Thailand said, it's a boundary property. You want to secure your boundaries. Mm. <clears throat> they said, get it. You can always build a sala, but you can't necessarily uh, get that property. Mm. And so then, 
the, uh, some, a famous monk actually heard about, or somehow figured it out, that I wanted this land, and, and he's, he, he's supporting it. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll probably, we'll probably get the funds from Thailand for that. Magic, some kind mm-hmm. of magic, yeah. And but Sala continues on nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're in a good position because we don't really need anything, right? We have, like, the monks are well well cared for and we have good support, so it's there's no urgency. If it happens, it happens. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, like, before we had that building, we had one shower for, like, everyone. <laughs> that was very true. I'd sometimes skip the evening puja, which I do all the time now, but <laughs> but then I, I always attended. So I'd skip the evening puja in order to have a shower. <laughs> and then I'd go up at five past seven, there'd be another monk in there. <laughs> Patience. Okay, please. Mm-hmm. Carry on.